Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The volume. All I want for the holidays this year is some NBA action. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks. An instant dub just for you guys. The MVP odds are heating up. Just so you guys know, on DraftKings today, December 18th, Nicole Jokic plus 210. Luka Doncic plus 400, Joel Embiid plus 425, Shea Gilgis-Alexander plus 900, Giannis plus 900, Jason Tatum plus 1800. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Friday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having an incredible week. We have a jam-packed show for you today. The Denver Nuggets come back from 18 down to beat the Warriors last night on a heave 
from Nikola Jokic. We're going to break that game down from the perspective of both teams. Then we had a report this morning that Jonathan Kaminga is very frustrated with Steve Kerr. We're going to talk about what that means for the Warriors. Then we're going to do a deep dive on the New Orleans Pelicans. After getting their ass kicked by the Lakers in the in-season tournament, they're playing really good basketball ever since then, so we're going to break them down for a little bit. Then we have our latest edition of the MVP rankings, something we haven't done in a couple of weeks. And then last but not least, we have eight mailbag questions for the end of the show as well. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It would mean a lot to me if you guys would take a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feeds, wherever you get your podcasts, under Hoops Tonight. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements or the film threads that I do. I'm going to be talking about the late game run from the Nuggets and the Warriors, but we're not going to go possession by possession through it. I did that this morning. Every single possession of the comeback on both ends of the floor in detailed breakdown. You can find that on my Twitter feed at underscore Jason LT. And then don't forget to keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube comments so we can keep hitting them throughout the week. And then last but not least, have you guys ever had a really frustrating ticket experience? I actually had one this summer. I was trying to go to a uh, um, to a Dead & Company concert concert in Phoenix, and it was just an absolute nightmare. Well, I want to talk to you guys more about Game Time. I think they're the best ticketing app out there right now. They have two, uh, a couple of specific features that I really like. They have all-in pricing, so you know upfront what you're getting yourself into from a cost standpoint, but they also have really good pictures of what you're seeing from every single seat. So it's an extremely transparent process that gives you an excellent experience buying tickets to live sporting events, concerts, and comedy shows, things along those lines, right? And like, look, we like talking about basketball here on the show Basketball is a great TV product, but nothing beats being there in person. I'm going to try to get up to a Suns game soon. For those of you guys here in Arizona, I think the Suns are about to go on a little bit of a run here too now that everybody's getting healthy. Get out to a Suns game. Get on the Game Time app. Use my code. You can use code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. So take the guesswork out of buying tickets with Game Time. Take advantage of that super transparent process. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S, for $20 off. Download Game Time today, last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right, let's talk some basketball. So, you know, one of the things we've talked about this season is I've never really been concerned about Denver, no matter what happens. You know, they haven't had the most impressive regular season so far to this point. I think after last night, they're still like 9-11 and against teams that are 500 or better. That said, I've never been worried because I think they're the best half-court team in the league, in my opinion. What does that mean when the game slows down, when, when the transition opportunities are few and far between? It's which team can execute in a slow-down half-court environment. And so I made a thread this morning of every single play that took place from when the Warriors were up 18 with six and a half minutes left or so to uh, Nikola Jokic's game winner. And in that thread, there's a really detailed breakdown of the specifics of what I'm about to talk about. But the short version is, on one end of the floor, the Nuggets knew exactly what they wanted to do on offense. And then on the other end of the floor, the Warriors had no idea what, what they wanted to do. They started by trying to post up Andrew Wiggins on Jamal Murray. And Nicole Jokic was just completely ignoring Kevon Looney, camping in the lane, making it so that Wiggins could not make an aggressive move. And then off the ball, the Nuggets were doing what a lot of teams have done to the Warriors since the Lakers kind of demonstrated it in the playoffs last year, and that's top-locking the off-ball actions. Meaning, on this particular play that I'm referencing, and I have a video clip of it in the thread, Wiggins has the ball in the post, Jokic is helping in the paint, 
uh, Jamal Murray is guarding Andrew Wiggins, and Kevon Looney goes over to set uh, a screen for either Brandon Podzemski or Stephen Curry to come flying off of that action towards the basketball to try to get open. KCP's on one side of the screen, and Aaron Gordon's on the other side, and they're both just denying the screen. They're like, if you run this way, you're just going to run right into me. And Andrew Wiggins, or excuse me, uh, uh, KCP and Aaron Gordon were prepared to switch. They were, they had it all set up so that KCP would take the first guy off the screen, and it just shut down the action. And they didn't know what to do. Right? They tried ball screens, but Denver was just chasing Steph over the top with Contavious Caldwell Pope, and Jokic was just doing his best to trap as best as he could with how fast Steph is, right? But they just ignored Andrew Wiggins on the weak side, and they covered Looney with that low man, and nothing was open. And they tried to make the pass to Wiggins once. Steph made a really nice cross-court pass, but Wiggins is shooting 31% on catch-and-shoot threes this year. Not a very good shot, right? Then Steve Kerr tries a lineup change. He brings in Chris Paul. He brings in Dario Saric. He brings in Trace, uh, Trace Jackson Davis. They start ducking under every single Chris Paul ball screen so Chris Paul can't get into the paint. That shuts down that action. They put Aaron Gordon on Dario Saric so they'd switch the Steph uh, Saric pick and roll. That put them in a situation where Steph couldn't get downhill on that action. Right, And then with Trace Jackson Davis, they could do the same thing that they were doing with Looney, which is just have the bracket with KCP and Nicole Jokic and just show help on the roll. As a matter of fact, there was one time that they got a good shot down the entire stretch of this game. And what they did is they ran a Saric ball screen to get Gordon switched on to Steph. Then they brought Trace Jackson Davis and Nikola Jokic into the action. Then when they bracketed, Steph hit Trace Jackson Davis. And now Denver's two biggest players are out at the three-point line. And Trace Jackson Davis got a left-handed layup at the basket. That was an easy shot because Denver's smaller players were on the back line. That was the one good shot they got in the entire six-and-a-half-minute stretch. And what was crazy is they had three additional possessions after that play where Trace Jackson Davis got the layup and they never went back to that same sequence, the the screen to get Gordon onto Steph and then the ball screen involving Nikola Jokic's guy. They Steph tried attacking KCP in ISO. That didn't work. He kind of got downhill, but KCP defended it well and he missed a scoop shot off the glass. They got one high percentage shot total in six and a half minutes with one of the very best offensive players of all time and certainly the best offensive player of his era on the floor. and It was just a great example of some of the personnel limitations that the Warriors have on the table, which we'll talk about more here in just a minute. But credit to Denver's defense, first of all. Uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Aaron Gordon had three or four ISO stops on Steph Curry during that stretch. The rest of the guys executed their scheme to perfection. I talked about the top locking of the shooters to shut down the, some of their split cut stuff. The ducking under ball screens on Contavious Caldwell-Pope, or excuse me, on uh, Chris Paul. That was actually Jamal Murray doing that. Uh, tagging and rotating on the weak side. Even Jamal Murray, who is a lesser defensive player, had some big contributions down the stretch on the defensive glass. Had two massive contested rebounds over that stretch. But the main reason, as, as much as I, I do want to credit Denver, and I'm not trying to undercut that in any sense, but you saw a lot of the personnel shortcomings with Golden State on full display, right? Like whether it was Looney and Wiggins or is Trace Jackson Davis and Chris Paul, no matter what Chris Paul, uh, no matter what Golden State went with down the stretch, they had two non-scoring threats on the floor. And that just made it so that Denver could throw the kitchen sink at Steph without reprisal. And it's, a big, it's the biggest, latest example of why Golden State desperately needs another high-level offensive player to put in those final groupings. I also disagree with the lineup Steve Kerr used down the stretch, but we'll get to that here in a few minutes. On the other end, 
Denver just continually spammed their pet actions and got great shots on every single possession. Steady dose of two-man game with Jokic and Murray. And they, they, like, it would be like the first time they ran it during the run, Jokic just gets a sweet little hook shot that he makes all the time, right? Second time, Looney gets a little more physical with him. He smokes that little hook shot, but Aaron Gordon gets an offensive rebound. That's a key, key little uh, storyline here down the stretch. Is like Even when they did get a stop on the Murray-Jokic post-up, or, or excuse me, the Murray-Jokic two-man game, Aaron Gordon would just be there to clean it up on the back end because he had Clay Thompson on him, and it's just too much of a of a uh, physical disadvantage there, right? They ran a bunch of double drag uh, sets down the stretch. Now, remember, the double drag is where they set two ball screens. Typically, one guy rolls and one guy pops uh, to the three-point line. On the first one, like Steph Curry went like he was going to hedge way on the outside, so Jamal split after the first screen and got downhill, made a kickout pass to Peyton Watson, who knocked down a quarter three. By the way, shout out Peyton Watson, who's been getting a lot of opportunities at the end of games because he's a really good defensive player, and he's knocking down shots. He's actually shooting 38% on corner threes this year, and then... <clears throat> They ran another double drag set where Steph didn't hedge this time. He actually switched out onto Jamal Murray, and they ended up getting the ball to Jokic on the roll, who ended up hitting uh, Aaron Gordon for a lob dunk. They just managed to get good shots every single time down the floor. Even if they did rotate out of the, the, the action that Denver was running, they could just throw the ball to Jokic in the post on the key possession late in the game, the one that tied the game. Chris Paul actually shut down the two-man game with a really smart stunt in rotation to take away the corner three from Peyton Watson and they just threw the ball to Nikola Jokic in the post who just calmly worked for an easy shot in the lane to score over Dario Sarge. So it was like the actions were getting great shots. Even when they stopped the actions, they just go to Jokic in the post. Even if Jokic missed a shot in the post, Aaron Gordon was there to clean up the mess. Really the one shot during that stretch where you're like, eh, that was lucky or not a, uh, you know, not necessarily great offense was there was a strong side help play from Clay Thompson where Aaron Gordon knocked down a corner three. And Aaron Gordon's shooting like 26% on corner threes this year, so you could say that was somewhat lucky. But outside of that, it was just a boatload of high-quality shots for Denver and then one high-quality shot for Golden State, which was the Trace Jackson Davis slip of the ball screen, which they never went back to the rest of the game. And even then, chances are, even if they just did it a second time, Denver probably makes some sort of adjustment. Simply put, they probably just have Aaron Gordon run a variation of a drop instead of switching, and then they don't end up with Aaron Gordon on Steph, right? So like, it just was a, a complete personnel mismatch on both ends of the floor. Not just the physicality, not just the rebound and the uh, rebounding and what they're capable of doing in terms of defensive rotations, but also an offensive personnel. You know, there there was a play where Jokic is going to work on, on Kavon Looney, and Brandon Pazemski just can't help because it's Michael Porter Jr. that's on the strong side, and he just can't help because he's leaving too good of a shooter open. There was even a play where Michael Porter Jr. missed a wide-open wing three. It was just a complete in total personnel mismatch. And on the Denver front, this remains the main reason why I think Denver is comfortably the championship favorite to this point, even more so than I've been saying earlier. I've been saying I think Denver is clearly and discernibly better. Now I think they're starting to be a little bit of a gap. They are by far the best half-court execution team. And it's like legitimately on both ends of the floor now. Yeah, they can generate quality shots every time down, but they are a really good defensive team this year. First of all, they have two outstanding individual defenders in Aaron Gordon and Contavious Cabo Pope. Talked earlier about how they had, like, I think they got at least three ISO stops on Steph Curry. KCP got one and then Aaron Gordon got two. 
But then everybody else just does their job. And now they even have the ability to go to Peyton Watson, who's shot the ball well enough to close games for them and just bring another outstanding athlete onto the court. So at this point, to put it simply, I've seen enough to say that if Denver is healthy, I'd be genuinely surprised if they didn't win the title this year. I think they're just a better version of the team that ran through everyone last year. Only an injury to a starter would crack the door enough, in my opinion, for someone else to get through. So shout out to Denver. You know, I was literally thinking this as I was watching the game last night. Um, I only watched the very end of it live. I watched the rest of it this morning. But I was actually uh, watching Game of Thrones with my wife. We're going through a rewatch just for fun. And I uh, I checked the score in the game, and I'm like, holy shit, the Nuggets are coming back. So I pulled my phone out at 127, 125, and I watched that final bucket against Saric in the post, and then the the Steph turnover, and then the uh, the Jokic game winner. And uh, by the way, the Jokic game winner was just completely absurd. The dude, it it, it it's unbelievable what this guy is doing. Uh, he's missed five shots in the last four games. It's insane. He's comfortably he's got a stranglehold on the best player in the world title right now. But I was thinking as I was watching to get the end of that game on my phone, I'm like, every once in a while in the NBA, a special team comes around, like a truly special team. And, you know, the last one felt like the Warriors, I think. There have been really good teams since then. I'm not trying to undercut that. But, like, a truly special team where you just know that they're going to be a level above everybody for a little while and that's what Denver feels like to me. It feels like they're the next in that long line of, of of truly special teams. If it was like the Spurs in the Heat in the early 2000s, and it was the Warriors in the late 2000s, and you know, uh, uh, I think I think we're flowing into now. This is the Denver era. They are the the truly special team of this era on the Golden State front. So we get this report. Coming out uh, uh, from Sham Sharania this morning, basically, basically Jonathan Kaminga just saying that he's completely lost trust in in Steve Kerr and his ability to help him reach his potential. And basically, what happens is Kaminga ends up sitting uh, the majority of the end of the game when he was supposed to come back in late. Kerr Kerr's excuse was basically like Andrew Wiggins was playing well. And Kaminga was sitting too long, so I didn't want to go back to him. But that doesn't really make sense considering with like three minutes left, he made a line shift of 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 Chris Paul and Trace Jackson Davis and Dario Saric. So like I, I don't really necessarily agree with that reasoning. But here, here's the thing. Jonathan Kaminga handling that stuff in the press, not a not a good look. And it's not the first time he's done it this year. But he does have a point. Kerr was literally throwing stuff at the wall at the end of that game. And, like, Kaminga just has to be one of the things he throws at the wall there. Especially against a team as big as Denver that's killing you and helping recover situations and on the offensive glass. Now, I personally would have gone with Stephen Clay, with Wiggins and Kaminga, and then Dario Saric. Maybe you, if Moody was in the rotation, but Moody's out of the rotation, maybe you can go with Moody in, in place of, uh, of Wiggins there. But, like, I would have gone with those guys. I, I think it would have just given you a much better chance of hanging defensively. You were already having all sorts of offensive limitations. Now, Steve Kerr is on the record, and he talked about this last night. He doesn't think the two of those guys fit well together. He said it doesn't look good on tape, and it doesn't look good in the numbers. And there are some numbers that back that up there. there. Here's my concern, though. Like, he's right. They are a little bit redundant, and they do need a perfect trio of players around them to be like really, really good, but that doesn't mean anything when the lineups he's throwing out there are also redundant and also lacking in key areas. 
It's not like he had a clearly defined lineup that made perfect sense that didn't include Kaminga. He was throwing shit at the wall, and Kaminga wasn't among the pile of shit he was throwing at the wall, if that makes sense. Right? And I, those are really aggressive words, but I'm trying to make a point. Um, the bottom line is, in my opinion, if you're going to be bad, you need to be bad with Kaminga on the floor. <laughs> like, because in terms of upside, he has some of the highest upside on the team. He was playing great that game. Having success attacking Jamal Murray in the post. Like, I don't understand how that wasn't one of the options that he went to down the stretch of the game. So even though I disagree uh, with with handling that sort of thing in the press, Jonathan Kaminga has a point. But, like, it really, to me, shines a light on the bigger issue here. It's time. It's time for Golden State to pick a direction and go already. Is Steve Kerr a bad coach? No. I I genuinely believe he's one of the best coaches in the league for a good veteran team that has an opportunity to win the title. He's very, very good with the tactical adjustments in playoff series, and he can manage the ebb and flow of, uh, of that playoff path, right? But it's clear that philosophically, he hates playing young players that aren't excellent in the dirty work areas, right? Or at least in terms of their reputation. Like, I think it's interesting that he continually trust Trace Jackson Davis and Brandon Pazemski, but not Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga. And it's because these guys have the like the higher-end potential. I, I think Pazemski's a really good two-way player, but those two guys have like the really high-end potential on offense. But like the thing, too, is like they can defend on the perimeter, too. He's mainly concerned about their decision-making process. And Kerr gets so paranoid about guys making bad decisions that he gives these guys really short leashes. But like he doesn't have to worry about Trace Jackson Davis making a bad decision because he's screaming and rolling to the rim but I would argue that he made it like here's the thing though like Trace Jackson Davis made a key defensive mistake at the end of the game over helping on a Jokic roll that gave up a Aaron Gordon dunk and even though that's not throwing a bad pass or taking a bad shot it is still a decision making mistake that led to two points for the other team so I don't even necessarily buy that as a reason but I'm just trying to say like I think Kerr's philosophy here is these guys are loose cannons I can't trust them to do their job these, uh, so I'm going to go with the veterans and I'm going to go with the young players that he trusts to do their job. And so it's clear that as long as Kerr is at the helm of this thing, Kaminga's not going to get consistent opportunity. Moody's not going to get consistent opportunity unless there's some sort of directive from on high that he's willing to listen to. And maybe that'll happen here down the stretch. I mean, that's what they need to happen at least until the deadline. But here's the reality. You need to do one of two things. You either need to fire Steve Kerr rebuild around the young players and move on to a new era because Steve Kerr is not the right coach for a young rebuilding team. He's not good with young players, right? But he's the perfect coach for a, a soft rebuild around Steph Clay and Draymond. Not to mention Steph and Clay in particular would probably mutiny if you fired Steve Kerr if they were still on the roster, right? So do one or the other. Make up your mind. It's the middle ground which is getting you into trouble constantly over the last couple of years. So, like, trade Jonathan Kaminga, trade Moses Moody, trade draft compensation, bring back a Siakam or a Markinen or a Jeremy Grant, and and run at it again with Stephen Clay and Draymond and those guys and Andrew Wiggins. Go and Steve Kerr is the perfect guy for that group. You'll never have a Jonathan Kaminga report to the press again after that. But if you don't believe in that, then yeah, fire Steve Kerr and go this way. There's been so much talk about uh, Steve Kerr being a bad coach. He's not a bad coach. He's coaching a bad team right now. That's what's happening. And they're a bad team in large part because one of their most important players has been suspended. 
There's one of their other most important players in Andrew Wiggins is just playing really bad basketball by his standards and what he's used to, right? And there's a a, 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 a philosophical schism taking place between the young players and their development and what's best for the team in the short term. And like, I would argue playing the young players is actually also better for the team in the short term until the trades are made, but Steve Kerr feels differently. And so in this in-between stretch, before they trade the young guys and up until the stretch where, or from now up until the stretch where they uh, get something back at the trade deadline, that gap there, Steve Kerr is the bad coach for this group. Not because he is a bad coach, he's just not the right coach for this specific personnel dynamic. And that's what you're seeing manifesting there. But like at the end of the day, and, and maybe they do have to wait till the deadline because that's the best way to drive the price up, right? Because people just get a little bit more desperate when we get to February, right? But if that's the case, you either need a directive from on high, like I said, that said, hey, stop it with the Kaminga shit, get him out there on the floor, right? Or Warriors fans need to be prepared for a really ugly stretch here up until the deadline, which is not the end of the world because once again, once you get to the deadline that we've seen just like with the Lakers last year, you can make a run, get up to that seven seed and try to make some noise in the playoffs. And, you know, if, if, if Golden State gets to that point and they have an OKC or they have a Minnesota in the first round, like Golden State's going to go into that series thinking they can win, especially if they bring back a high caliber player at the deadline. Right. So like not all is lost, but they need to make a decision. And before that decision, it's either going to look really bad or there needs to be some sort of flexing of muscles in the front office or the ownership group to try to get Steve Kerr to start playing these young guys. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's move on to the New Orleans Pelicans. So I was watching Pell's Wolves this morning, and uh, it was a really interesting game because it was close early, but then the uh, the Pelicans just completely dominated in the second quarter. CJ McCollum and Brandon Ingram are both absolutely cooking and pick and roll right now. So those guys were going off. They were defending extremely well. They had Anthony Edwards frustrated and complaining at the refs. Carl Anthony Towns was taking one leg fadeaways. The Minnesota's got some personnel shortcomings too when it comes to off-ball shooting, which has been a big problem in their half-court offense. But they ended up running away with the win. As a matter of fact, the Pelicans held the Wolves under 25 points, or 25 points or fewer in each of the first three quarters as they ran away. It was actually one of the more impressive wins of the season when you figure it was on the road in Minnesota. So I figured it was time to check on the Pels because since getting their ass kicked in the in-season tournament game against the Lakers, they are 9-3 and three and have avenged that loss to the Lakers. They are 6th in offense, 2nd in defense, 2nd in net rating, and 2nd in rebounding percentage. And I want to start on the defensive end of the floor. It really just comes down to them being excellent in three key phases. They're excellent at the point of attack, they're excellent in backside rotation, and they're excellent on the defensive glass. And when I say backside rotation, that's help, that's defensive rebounding, that's rotating when the ball, uh, uh, when the defense is compromised and you're kind of in like a uh, uh, kind of a chaos situation. They have athletes and they communicate really well. Brandon Ingram in particular has been so, so good as a help side defender this year. I think he's having one of his better defensive seasons of his career. But specifically, what's interesting to me about it is Jonas Valanciunas is not a very good defensive player. And it kind of reminds me of Denver in the sense that like what they have bracketed around him with the point of attack in their backside rotations kind of makes the whole thing work, especially when you factor in that they're cleaning up the glass. And again, it comes down to some of that backside athleticism too. You know, uh, when we look at Denver, guys like Michael Porter Jr. and Peyton Watson, in addition to Aaron Gordon as a low man, go a long way towards making that whole thing work. And there's just always so much length and athleticism on the floor for the Pelicans, and I think it's uh, uh, the primary driving force between their uh, behind their defensive foundation. On the offensive end of the floor, over this 12-game span, C.J. McCollum, Zion Williamson, and Brandon Ingram are all averaging over 20 points per game very efficiently. Zion's up over 60% from the field. Um, thanks to those three guys in particular, the Pelicans have been the sixth most productive isolation attack in the league. In the league, Brandon Ingram in particular is getting 1.14 points per isolation possession, including passes. There are 26 players in the league that have attempted at least 100. Brandon Ingram's at number six right now. Still love his combination of over-the-top shot making, and he's always been one of the better playmakers at his position group. I talked in the game breakdown a little bit about their pick-and-roll attack in the second quarter. And both CJ and Brandon Ingram have been excellent pick-and-roll players all season. Brandon Ingram's at 1.05 points per possession. CJ McCollum's at 1.03. It's the most common play type in the NBA, so pretty much anything over one is good. Uh, There are 67 players in the league to run at least 100. Brandon Ingram and CJ are 24th and 27th respectively. Trey Murphy is shooting 45% from three on six attempts per game during this 12-game stretch. Then I want to shout out Jonas Valanciunas because like, obviously we've talked some about, his, uh, some about his defensive limitations, but he's having an awesome offensive season. He's been one of the best post-up players in the league. 
1.13 points per possession, including passes sixth out of 23 players to attempt at least 100 post-ups to this point. And then he's become a super important part of the Pell's pick-and-roll attack. He's got a really good you know, uh, pick-and-pop and pocket pass uh, chemistry with Brandon Ingram. As a matter of fact, Jonas Valanciunas is converting role man possessions at 1.38 points per possession, which is outstanding. That is second in the NBA among players to attempt at least 75. There's 20 players that qualify, and he ranks second. And then the last guy I wanted to shout out was Jose Alvarado. Alvarado, excuse me. Just such a useful role player off the ball in particular. He's an absolute menace at the point of attack. 2.3 steals per 36 minutes so far this season. He's a really aggressive up underneath players. He's got a low center of gravity, slides his feet well, beats players to spots. He disrupts the basketball, still getting people with that sneak attack. But he's also a very good offensive player off the ball. He converts spot-up possessions at 1.09 points per possession and is shooting 62% in effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers. And you can see it on the scoreboard. The Pelicans are 13 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor versus off, which is the second best mark on the team behind Trey Murphy. So shout out to the New Orleans Pelicans. Let's see if they can keep up this level of play over the rest of the season. Now let's move on to our MVP rankings. So we have a a couple of guys dropping off this week, specifically Steph Curry and Jalen Brunson. Between the two of those guys, they have lost eight games since our last edition of power rank or of uh, MVP rankings. So they're dropping off the list for now. Number 10, and remember, my uh, my MVP rankings, like if I was an MVP voter, I'd feel different. I, I just want to use my MVP rankings as a means with which to basically just say who's been the best regular season player this year. That That is the main purpose of my MVP rankings. And for what it's worth, that's the way a lot of voters see it too. So we'll see if it ends up panning out at the end of the year. But I just wanted to – I know we've done them a few times, but I wanted to just give that quick little uh, briefer, uh, briefing. Number 10, De'Aaron Fox. His scoring and efficiency have taken a little dip since our last rankings, and the Kings have dropped some games. Um, So he drops to 10, and he had a nightmare game against the Orlando Magic the other night, although he did hit a couple of big shots in double overtime. But he's been one of the best volume pull-up shooters in the league this year, which I wanted to shout out really quick. He's getting 1.1 points per pull-up jump shot. There are 23 players in the league that have attempted at least 200, and he ranks third. Only Tyrese Halliburton and Trey Young have been better. So an excellent pull-up shooting season for uh, De'Aaron Fox. And just a huge deal when you factor in the fact that he's already one of the best downhill athletes in the league and already a great mid-range scorer, an excellent floater, great rim finisher, and great passer. Number nine, Anthony Edwards. He's averaging 34 points, four rebounds, and five assists since our last MVP rankings on 40% from three, by the way. Best player on the best team in the Western Conference, even if it is largely on the strength of the team's defense. I do want to shout him out, though, because he's been one of the best pick-and-roll ball handlers in the league this year. He's getting 1.1 points per pick-and-roll, including passes. Sixth out of 48 players to run at least 250. He's got really good chemistry with uh, Rudy Gobert on the roll this year. Number eight, Jason Tatum. Even though I get annoyed with his offensive approach, and even though he's not as efficient as some of his peers around the league, the Celtics are 4-1 and one since our last rankings, and Tatum is averaging 28 points, 8 rebounds, and 6 assists, so he'll hold on to the 8th spot for now. Number 7, another one of the new guys on our list, Kawhi Leonard. 
Most folks don't know this, but Kawhi is having the most efficient scoring season of his career. He's over 63% true shooting for the first time ever. He's getting 1.22 points per ISO, which is outrageous. Only his teammate James Harden and Tyrese Halliburton have been more efficient um, on volume. I think it's like a minimum 100 possessions, if I remember correctly. He's also making 48% of his catch-and-shoot jump shots, getting 1.34 uh, points per shot. The Clippers are 15 points per 100 possessions better with Kawhi on the floor versus off. And the Clippers are now up to fourth in the Western Conference and riding another four-game winning streak. So he could climb much higher on this list if he stays healthy throughout the rest of the season. Number six, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis is still an absolute wrecking ball, even if Victor Wembanyama, that play where he blocked him at the rim uh, last night was one of the craziest basketball plays I've ever seen. And Victor just keeps doing stuff like that, right? Uh, but despite that, since our last rankings, 32 points, 13 rebounds, 7 assists on 63% field goals, and 36% from three since our last rankings. He hit two th huge threes against the Spurs last night in crunch time, but the Bucks have dropped three games in the last two weeks, including back-to-back -back outclassings at the hands of the Indiana Pacers, so Giannis is going to drop to sixth for now. Number five, Luka Doncic. Our leading scorer since our last rankings, 38 points per game to go with 8 rebounds and 10 assists per game, 50% from the field and 41% from three. He's also led the Mavs to a 4-2 record in that span, so he moves up to five this week. Number four, Tyrese Halliburton. Five straight wins, all against good teams, including back-to-back -back wins against the Bucks, who you know, or have some issues uh, at the point of attack as we've broken down on this show. Uh, he resoundingly outplayed Damian Lillard in both games. I'm telling you, this is a, a theme I've seen around the league this year too. These young guys are really starting to outplay some of the veterans around the league. And it's getting to that point where it might be a changing of the guard of sorts. Uh, in that five-game stretch, 27 points, five rebounds, and 15 assists per game, 51% from the field, 39% from three, 88% from the foul line, and 1.4 turnovers a game to go with 15 assists. As a matter of fact, in terms of pure value, in terms of who is doing the most with the least, I actually would put Tyrese Halliburton at number one, but it's team success that's keeping him down to number four for now. But I don't think anybody's done more with less this year than Tyrese Halliburton. Nikola Jokic. He's only missed five shots over his last four games. Hit the nasty game winner over Kevon Looney last night. He's a different candidate than some of the other guys on this list because he's not very aggressive as a scorer this season with the team healthy. Hasn't attempted 20 shots in a game a single time over the last seven games, but he's still dominating and the Nuggets are rolling. He's up to number three. Number two, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, the only guy to beat Jokic in the last month or so, and he did it twice, including with a game winner. Here's a crazy set of Shea stats for you. 1.1 points per pick and roll, including passes. 1.2 points per ISO, including passes. 1.31 points per post-up, including passes. So he's basically getting almost 1.2 points for any self-created possession in the half court. He's become one of the top five shot creators in the league. I'm very, very excited to watch him play meaningful playoff basketball this year. Last but not least, number one, Joel Embiid. He's only played in two games since our last rankings, but he's averaging 31-13 and 10 assists. Yes, 10 assists per game. You heard that correctly. Over his last two games, 
averaging five turnovers a game over that span. But we can't de- uh, deny anymore that Joel Embiid is taking a leap as a passer, and that's a very, very encouraging thing for him as a postseason player. I want to credit Nick Nurse, too, for simplifying some of his reads this year. He has the best combination of total MVP case, which is like two-way impact, insane counting stats, team success, and specific value to his team's success on this list. So he's at number one for the time being. All right, let's move on to our mailbag. First question. Do you think that Tatum will continue to hunt difficult pull-up threes late in games or against favorable matchups in playoffs when it's so clear that driving and kicking and hoping for the ball to come back to your hands for a high-percentage shot is a better option? I don't know if I'm just very accustomed to your show and your words, but man, it has become so obvious when he's taking these contested difficult shots that don't go in anyways. In other words, if it's so obvious to us on TV, why hasn't Boston adjusted that part out of his game yet, or will we see it adjusted come playoffs? So I think the reality is, is Jason Tatum is probably trusting his work here, and like he probably just has a great amount of belief in that pull-up jump shot. That doesn't mean it's a good shot, but that I think is his reasoning behind taking it. Uh, I do think the coaching staff could be a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, deliberate about trying to talk him out of taking those shots. But at the end of the day, too, like it's a fine line between that and taking away a player's confidence. You want him to be confident taking those shots, and like he has made them in the playoffs at times. Like we saw him make them in Game Seven against the Philadelphia 76ers, Right, that was a big part of his late game comeback there. But we do have a really large sample size of him being largely inefficient with that shot. And the reality is, in my opinion, he's young still. And eventually it will click for him as he learns to truly value every single possession at a higher level than he does now. I just think it's a matter of time. Most of these guys don't figure this kind of stuff out until their late 20s, early 30s, right? That's why all the great superstars, you know, don't win until they're 26, 27 years old, right? So, like, I just think it's only a matter of time. He just needs to figure out, you know, what the best way to attack every individual possession is for him. Next question. Do you have any interest or capacity within the framework of the show to mix in some WNBA coverage and or analysis? It could fit in nicely as some NBA offseason opportunities for your uh, for content that wouldn't need to replace your NBA offseason coverage and opportunities for rest and relaxation for you, but maybe some coverage that would give you the chance to address interesting observations about the basketball and personnel in that league. <clears throat> There's certainly other shows out there that are exclusively covering the WNBA, but I'd certainly be interested in hearing your perspective on WNBA basketball and have some fun hearing you talk shop about some of my favorite players and teams in that league. Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work. So um, here's the thing. I, it's not just the WNBA. There's a lot of sports out there that I don't watch as much as I'd like. Like I'm a huge NFL fan and I, you know, I went into this season, I, I ended up paying for the uh, the All-22 package because I wanted to kind of learn more about the schematics of football just because I've always been a fan of the game. And then the season starts, and I'm so busy with my job, I just it just falls on the wayside. I barely use that package, so I might as well have ripped up $70. And I haven't followed the NFL very closely. I'm a big college football fan. I'm a big uh, college basketball fan, huge U of A basketball fan. We have a really good team this year. I've only watched like four or five of the games. And it's just because like this job is so demanding from the standpoint of like, think about all the things on this show that we still kind of need to hit. Like Trey Young, hooping his ass off, would like to talk about it at some point, right? Like the Cavs, despite being without Evan Mobley and Darius Garland have been kind of feisty. They're worth talking about. Like 
there I could go on and on. There there are so many NBA topics. We I'd love to do a rookie rankings at some point, right? And like talk about Victor Wembanyama and Scoot Henderson and the Thompson twins. I I'd love to do all that stuff. But the reality is is like it's it's so difficult to find time for all of these things that if I have an extra hour, like I'm going to be like this morning, I'll be like, you know, what? I need to hit the Pelicans. They're hooping. I need to get to the Pelicans. And so I, I crammed in time today to watch Pelicans Wolves and to do a deep dive into the numbers. And like, if I have time, I direct it towards the NBA and so even though I'm a huge basketball fan who loves loves watching women's basketball, I did, specifically, I had a great time watching the women's tournament last year. I, I thought Caitlin Clark was one of the most entertaining you know, uh, television phenomena that I've seen in the last couple of years and what she did in the tournament last year. I'd love to do that. It's just when I have extra time, I devote it towards the NBA because – I just want to keep doing a better job of this. And like, I don't think there's a version of it where I could cover other things and still do this as well. It would, it would have to be part of some larger shift to just covering all sports in a lesser capacity. And right now I, first of all, I'm not even sure I ever want to do that. I love the NBA. It's, it's, it's like, you know, the second most thing, important thing in the world to me, to my, uh, to my family and friends. Right. So like I, I, uh, uh, for, for me right now, like I I just don't see it in the cards. That's not to say never, but for right now, I just don't see a universe where I start covering the WNBA just simply from the standpoint of how much time I have. Next question. You move the thunder into your contender tier. Are there any moves that could make their pool of assets that moves them into your Denver Boston tier right now? And if so, would you make that move and wait and see what happens this playoffs before changing anything? They're young, but rookie contracts will end and they might not be able to retain all the key guys. So uh, again, I've said this before on the show, but an upgrade at that four spot is what would move them into the contender tier for me. I agree from the standpoint of like there not being urgency. I don't think they win the title this year anyway just simply from the standpoint of like you need experience like I always talk about battle scars like you need to be scarred by losing in the playoffs so many times that you suddenly break through there's nobody that gets to cheat that process the Warriors lost in 2013 and lost in 2014 right like it you 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 suffer on the way to that point it's a it's a very important part of that process the Nuggets lost to the Lakers in the 2020 bubble, right? Then they lost in 2021. Then they lost in 2022 when they were injured. It's like, it's all part of that process. And you get so terrified of losing that you start to make these crazy extra efforts. I remember in the 2012 NBA finals, that was a big storyline. Like Shane Battier is like, making these crazy efforts for extra rebounds because he's been in the league for a decade and he just wants to win so bad, right? And it's like as good – it's not to say that there's the young players aren't competitive. It's just it's – hard to, it's hard to explain other than to just say there is another level to this. And as good as the Thunder have been, the other level is winning in April, May, and June. And, and that, that, that is not something that teams pick up overnight. It, it takes time. And so from that standpoint – you wait to, to make that all-in move for the right player. Now, if the right player is available at this deadline, get him now. Because the more time you have to build that chemistry, the better. Might as well build those play, that playoff scar tissue this season, right? But if the right guy is not available this deadline, you can be patient because I don't see this year ending 
in a championship for the Thunder. I have to include them just by virtue of their overall talent in my list of contenders, but I would be shocked if they won the title just based on everything we've learned from NBA history. Um, next question. And this is less of a question, just a comment. I got like four Celtics fans saying this in the comments. Definitely a worthy game to talk about, but just to be clear, that's seven for seven on Celtics videos immediately following a loss. Let's try to match that amount with videos after they win, if that's not too much to ask. <laughs> Lots of Celtics fans said this. Uh, to be clear, I pick the show, uh, the, the kind of the layout of the show, and which games I'm going to cover in advance. So like, when I covered the Celtics, I planned on covering them before the game. If they, I haven't looked back to see. I don't, I don't agree with that stat because I literally covered the Celtics beating the Lakers on Christmas Day. So that's just, it's at least some amount of inaccurate. Um, that said, like, like I have no vendetta against the Celtics. I would pick them to win a playoff series against everybody in the league except for Denver, and I'd give them a chance to beat Denver. Um, we've talked uh, – one of the reasons why we don't talk as much about them on this show as some of the other teams is they have a very clear style that they play, and it doesn't change. They're not a team in turmoil. They're not a team trying to figure out how they want to play. They're not a team that has major rotation concerns, and so they're not a team that like has as much like debate surrounding them other than – can they get the job done? Is Tatum capable enough of being that guy? Which I think is something we've covered in detail on this show. But the reality is, is like I've picked them in a lot of big high leverage games and they've lost a lot of those big high leverage games, which has a lot to do with some of my concerns surrounding the Celtics and what their potential is in the big picture. But here's the thing. I'm going to keep picking Celtics games based on major matchups throughout the season that we're going to cover. And if the Celtics win, that we're going to, we're going to cover them as if they won, right? So like it's it's not any sort of uh, uh, of you know uh, cherry picking Celtics losses. This is predetermined stuff here for the layout of the show. Next question: The Warriors have experienced lackluster performance from Clay Thompson, Kevon Looney, and Andrew Wiggins. Seems unusual for this group of historically consistent players to be struggling at the same time. It seems like their issues are more than on the court. What is the likelihood that the chemistry and the buy-in from their core is broken? And if this continues, is Steve Kerr's job in jeopardy? So I'm not going to talk about Steve Kerr's job because we talked about that in the Warriors segment earlier today. But here's the thing. To talk about each of those individual players, Clay Thompson's just getting a little bit older. That's all that is. Kevon Looney, is a big part of it is scheme. I think as the overall offensive talent on the floor is dipped, Having Kevon Looney out there has become a bigger problem than back when Andrew Wiggins was playing really well and back when Clay Thompson was playing really well, right? So as the offensive talent has dipped, uh, Kevon Looney's offensive shortcomings have kind of risen to the table, and that was a big issue down the stretch last night. Andrew Wiggins, your guess is as good as mine, man. I don't know what happened to him. He's just not the same guy. And... <laughs> I, I wish I could give you some sort of explanation, but uh, I, I don't know what to say. The dude, he's not shooting well. He's not defending as well. He's not making decisions as well. He, he's just not the same player. And that is a really unfortunate circumstance for the Warriors because it's changed the, you know, the trajectory of that team over the course of the last couple of years. Next question. Please tell us what shoes you wear while hooping. Would love to know what your favorites have been throughout the years, what you're currently wearing, and how your play style affects your preference. Thanks for putting out such great content. We don't deserve it. Well, I disagree with that last part, although I do sincerely appreciate the support and the kind words. Um, basketball shoes. When I was younger, I played in Kobe's a lot. Um, 
played in hyperfuses when I was in college. That was my go-to. I wore hyperfuse lows my uh, my second year in college. That was one of my favorite shoes that I played in. Uh, but a lot of Kobe's after that. Post Kobe, it's been like I basically try to find whatever uh, new shoe is performance based. I, mean, I shouldn't say performance based. That fits my sh- my foot in the way that I play best. And it's funny when I was younger, I used to care so much about the what the shoes looked like and I'd find a pair that looked sick and I'd buy them. Right. But like now I could care less. All I care about is like, does it feel good in my foot and does it feel good to hoop in? And so the last two that I've been, cause what I'll do is like, I'll find a pair of shoes that I really like and then I'll just buy as many of them as I can and just ride it out until that shoe doesn't exist anymore. So the previous shoe to the, cause right now I'm, I'm wearing the Ionescu's very similar to Kobe's. I'm on my second pair of them. One of the things for me is I, I like a lighter, low top shoe, kind of like a Kobe. Uh, but the problem is, is I weigh 230 pounds. And so I wear through them super fast. Cause I play like a guard. I play out on the perimeter. And so they just break down really fast. So I do go through shoes relatively quickly, unfortunately, but I like having that lighter shoe. Cause I like to be quicker on my feet, but the Unescu's have been my go-to shoe as of late. But before that, I went through five pairs of LeBron 19 lows, which is crazy because I never was a LeBron guy. Uh, I think his shoes have are generally too heavy and, and, and kind of uncomfortable and the traction's not great. Never been a huge fan of LeBron basketball shoes, but the LeBron 19 lows were really, really nice. And I really liked those. And I went through five sets of them. So like I'll probably end up riding out the Unescu's for the next year or so. And then I'll be on to the next one. But I, I, the Unescu's kind of follow this Kobe trend. And so I kind of have a feeling that that's going to be my go-to basketball shoe for a little while. Uh, and I know I've said this on the show before, but I can't even begin to describe how much better it's been just being back out on the court because that injury saga was just an absolute nightmare. Um, I'm slow as shit. I'm still, it's still going to take a couple of months for me to get to the point where I can play at the level I was playing before, but it just feels good to be back out there. I just don't get having the Lakers as a top five contender when they clearly need the trade and not have Minnesota in there who are not currently a theoretical team. You have spoken often about theoretical basketball or, or that sim- uh, you've spoken how theoretical basketball is simply that theoretical. Lakers aren't even guaranteed to be a top tier contender with a contender with a good trade. They're certainly not top five at the moment and totally and got totally owned by the Wolves the other night. So here's the thing. The Laker thing is up for debate. So is the Wolves thing. Like they're like up for debate topics and then they're not up for de- debate topics. Like if you tried to sit here and tell me that you didn't think Denver was a championship contender, I'd be like, yeah, you're just wrong about that. Like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Right. Uh, but this stuff is up for debate. And here's the reality. When I say theoretical basketball, to me, the Wolves are the theoretical team because I haven't seen them make a long playoff run. I watched them last year. be not good enough to beat Denver. Right. But like I haven't seen them against multiple matchups. I haven't seen them have to make multiple defensive adjustments or offensive adjustments against multiple opponents. You have to win four series to get through. I have personally watched LeBron James and Anthony Davis win six playoff series. I just watched them last year. Beat the two-seed Memphis Grizzlies, beat the defending champion Golden State Warriors, and then lose to the eventual champion Denver Nuggets. That's not theoretical. They have issues within the regular season that they need to address. They are not a theoretical basketball team. I know exactly what they look like in the postseason. That, to me, is exactly why I have the Wolves below them. I, I, you should know this. 
I've been working on adding things to the show to have more reverence for the regular season. That's kind of like what my power rankings are. That's kind of like what my MVP rankings are, right? Like I want to do a better job of acknowledging the regular season accomplishments within the 82. But I am like, it takes a lot to move me in a regular season. Like it just takes a lot because I value postseason basketball is almost like a different sport. It's not really a different sport, but it's like such a higher level of basketball in terms of intensity and physicality and adjustments. And, and it, like an experience suddenly comes to the table and superstar talent is, comes to the table and all these different things. And like the, the problem with the Wolves is like, I, I, I know Anthony Edwards is going to be really freaking good one day, but like, I don't know when. And their half court offense sucks. It was a huge issue against the Pelicans when they got their ass kicked the other night. Like they have all these big red flags and they don't have a playoff foundation that gives me margin for error with them. Notice I haven't taken the Warriors off of my championship contenders. Why? Because I know what Steph, Clay, and Draymond can do in a playoff series when they have two other really good players on the floor with them. And if they go out and they make a trade and they bring back a Pascal Siakam or a Lori Markinen, they're going to be really damn good again. And I know Steph Curry is one of the best playoff players in the league. I, to put it simply, Steph's a way better playoff player than Anthony Edwards, in my opinion, right now. So that to me makes even Steph and the Warriors somewhat less theoretical than Minnesota. I have Minnesota higher than Golden State right now because Golden State has major personnel issues. I actually think the Lakers, who have personnel issues, have significantly better personnel than the Golden State Warriors. They've underachieved in a lot of ways. We've talked about their coaching situation. I think the Lakers are actually pretty close. And that's why I still have them at fourth in in my championship rankings. I don't view them as theoretical because I've seen LeBron James and Anthony Davis and what they can do in a playoff series. More importantly, LeBron and AD look better than they did last year. So to clarify, theoretical basketball to me is more referring to the playoffs, not the regular season. Like, you are correct. The Minnesota Timberwolves have been a much better regular season team than the Lakers. But that to me is not the same as what I saw in the postseason last year when I, I just I think LeBron James and Anthony Davis are just a, a significantly more impactful playoff duo than Anthony Edwards and Carl Towns or Anthony Edwards and, and Rudy Gobert, or however you want to look at it. Doesn't mean the Wolves can't win. I just view them as more of a long shot as a result. Last question. Did you forget about the Clippers as contenders, or do you think they aren't contenders? Here's the thing with the Clippers. I'm really concerned about their frontline size. And, and, and a lot of the shot selection stuff, the James Harden playoff stuff. So for me, I, I'm not saying I'll, I won't put them on there. As a matter of fact, I expect that I probably will at some point this season. I just want to see a couple more high leverage games. Uh, the, I want to see them in like a major nationally televised, like on the road in Oklahoma city against the thunder, which I wanted to see the other day, but the Kawhi was out, but like, I just want to see them get a couple of really big high leverage wins before I add them to the contender list at that point. Because uh, there's a lot theoretical with the with the Clippers as well, unfortunately, as it pertains to their front line. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. I hope you guys have a good weekend, and we will be back on Monday. volume. 
Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.